This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Election day is Tuesday. However, early voting is happening now, and mail-in voting has already happened. I've already voted, and there are a series of races for elected office that you should be paying attention to, and there are also a series of ballot questions, four to be exact, maybe five, with one being non-binding, depending on where your ballot is from. One of the questions is question four, the Work and Family Mobility Act. Now, I remember years ago being right across the street from the radio station at a rally in the offices of the Pioneer Valley Workers' Center, where there were many elected officials, law enforcement officials, all wanting to talk about why people in this country, in this state in particular, regardless of their immigration status, should be allowed to apply for a driver's license. Joining me from the Pioneer Valley Workers' Center is Andrea Schmidt. This is an issue that the Pioneer Valley Workers' Center has been concerned with for a long time when it was brought up as legislation, passed, then vetoed by Governor Baker, and then overridden by the legislature again. Tell me why this is an issue important to the Pioneer Valley Worker Center. Thank you, Monty. Um, thanks for having us today. I mean, this has been a priority issue for the Worker Center. Um, as you know, we are a membership-based organization. I've been here for five, working at the Worker Center for five years, and since the very beginning, when you ask anyone in the immigrant community what is one concrete thing that the you know we at the Worker Center can do to support you all to make your life easier, something you want to be a part of also in, in winning, driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants was always number one. Why do you think that is? Well, broadly, right, what we really need is people to be able to have immigration status in this country, but driver's licenses are one step towards that direction. In Western Mass in particular, we live in a, you know, everyone here knows that you have to drive everywhere. People who do not have IDs or documentation to prove that there's a higher risk, right, of being pulled over uh, by law enforcement. And, you know, during the Trump era and still now, but really at that time, which was when we started working on this legislation, um, it was really common for people to get pulled over and get arrested and then be ever closer to being captured or getting the attention of ICE. Including our friend Lucio Perez. Is that correct? That is correct. So for people who don't remember that story, he was living in this country and he's from Guatemala originally. And during the Trump era, knew he was was on the cusp of being deported and took sanctuary at a church in Amherst. We've gone to visit him on the march for the food bank many years until he was able to come out and then joined us on the march last year, which was so powerful for me. But he had done nothing illegal except drive without a license, which is illegal. That's right. And as we all know, driving is a necessity to be able to be alive and to be able to do all the things that we need to do and for people to be able to work. And when we think about the role that undocumented immigrants play in our community, which is a really, really strong role, you know, most of the folks from the community are cooking our food, they're growing our vegetables, they have to take their kids to school, um, they're building and taking care of our children. All of the unseen reproductive labor that allows our society to function is often powered by undocumented immigrants. And so Passing this legislation is not a radical thing. We were the 17th state in June to pass the Work and Family Mobility Act. Tons of states across the country, also particularly in our little nook of the country, Connecticut, Vermont, New York, anyone who's an immigrant can have access to a driver's license. So it really is just a way to, to make things easier for really everyone involved, undocumented folks, also really everyone on the road. It makes things safer. There's more accountability. We decrease the chances of hit and runs. Additionally, we we have folks who are all paying insurance. And so it's really, it's not just a moral issue for folks that are in solidarity with the immigrant community, but really an issue that, you know, like so many laws that improve the lives of some of the most marginalized people ends up actually supporting and improving conditions for everyone. And, um, you know, we have folks here from, from different areas of our community who are also stakeholders to, that are going to talk about it today. But this is actually supported by tons of business owners across the valley, as well as a lot of law enforcement officials um, throughout the state. And we have a law enforcement an official here who we'll talk to in just a little bit, but that was Andrea Schmidt, an organizer with the Pioneer Valley Workers Center, who wanted to convene this conversation for the radio, and I'm so thankful that she did. And uh, we heard about the importance of the business community supporting this and the agricultural community supporting this. And one voice who's just had an op-ed piece in the Daily Hampshire Gazette is my favorite farmer, I'll play favorites, Wally Sykowski from Plainville Farm in Hadley, the home of the best asparagus which is how Wally pronounces it, by the way. Say it for me, please. Asparagus. You see, he doesn't say asparagus. He says asparagus. I do say asparagus. 
See? <laughs> Wally, this is an issue that you've cared deeply about for a long time as well. And you, as I mentioned, you wrote about it in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Tell me why this is an issue of importance to you. It's important to me because you need to have a license to survive in our local economy. You just can't have your kids in school, have a job, go to church, do all the things a person does every, every week and not have a license. You need one. People don't want to drive without a license. They're forced into it. It's not an option. And I think what a lot of folks don't understand is how long it takes to get documented in this country. This is not a 30-day process. I know people who've been in the process for five, six, seven years. That's how long it takes. And those people can't apply for license within the process? No. This is the fight I had with my dad the other day who was on the fence, the child of an immigrant himself, on the fence about whether or not he should support this. Why don't they just get the proper paperwork? I said, your dad probably took him decades in the early part of the 20th century to, to get the right paperwork, but I'm sure he wanted to drive to support you and his my dearly departed grandmother. It takes a long time, and you can't leave the area because you have to attend hearings. So you have to be in the area. You've got to file expensive applications. It's Pay not for a lawyer. Easy. Right. You need a lawyer. All these things, you need money. Your family's growing up. You have to uh, keep the process going. You have to drive. You have to have a job. I spoke with uh, Farmer Michael Doctor about this the other day. He's also supportive of Yes on 4, which we should say that if this is something you care about, you should vote Yes on 4 if you haven't already. Um, and he said that many of our farmers, that the owners of the farm, don't even really know the immigrants, the immigration status of, of their employees, and that isn't such a bad thing. On paper, everybody working at our farm is, is okay. Uh-huh. But it's against the law not to hire somebody because you think their papers might not be accurate. Uh-huh. Well, we don't want to break the law either. Right. That's why we hire the folks. Everybody working at a place has a green card and an I-9. Mm -hmm. Can you get a license with a green card or an I-9, or do you need more than that to get a license in Massachusetts? Uh, Does anyone know the answer to this? What about the district attorney, Dave Sullivan? If they are, if their status isn't a green card, they can't they can't get a license. So, so a green card permit resident alien can get a license, yes. Dave Sullivan, who is uh, essentially the chief law enforcement officer of the Northwestern District, the district attorney, what is your take on question four? I'm overwhelming in support of it. I think it's got practical common sense applications, but it really makes for safer roads because people are, are trained, they're tested, they're on highways and byways, and you want these folks to, to have the proper credentials. Uh, just a couple of statistics, and I think it's pretty overwhelming. We've seen it in other states. In New Mexico, they had a 60% drop in uninsured drivers when this was passed. In Utah, it showed an 80% drop in uninsured. It, it, in New Jersey, it was over $200 million came in in fees and insurance uh, just in that state alone. So we have major states from California, New Jersey, and our New England states that it's a proven formula. And also, the tendency is that if somebody uh, has undocumented status, they don't want to stay around. They're afraid of the police. And this reduces it significantly that people, when they have that license, they stay for the police, they get the exchange of licenses and things like that, and you, you figure out who's at fault. But we want to reduce that because um, it could be an injured motorist, it could be just property, but we want to make sure that these folks don't feel like they're going to lose their uh, ability to live in the United States and, and get citizenship at some point. So it's interesting that the chief law enforcement officer does think this is a good idea because one of the critiques of question four is that uh, this is going to get people who are not credentialed here properly to vote or to claim access to rights of citizens alone. Yeah, it, it's a regular license. It's not the one, the real ID that now you need for airplanes to get on board. It's a standard license. It doesn't give uh, citizenship. It doesn't give voting rights. It's all kind of a bunk, the arguments about that. You know, it's really important that people know that this doesn't give special privileges. And it actually, the chiefs of police of Massachusetts, the major cities have endorsed it. And there's one reason for it. They have an identification. They know who they're dealing with. They can run the license and see who's in front of them. And you don't have that right now. I, it's worth noting that uh, the chief of police of Northampton, Jody Casper, was invited, just couldn't make it because of scheduling. But 
as far as I know, is also supportive yeah. of, of question four. And we have a very diverse district attorneys association. So every district attorney in Massachusetts has endorsed this bill. We're all behind it. Even Bristol County? Oh, the d- district attorney. I'm not, not the talk- sheriff. I'm not talking about the sheriff. Okay. That's where I grew up. That's where my parents well, are from. L- listen, he'd like to deport you, Monty, know. okay? He'd probably you like know? to deport my parents, too, and they don't even realize <laughs> Coming up, more of our roundtable discussion on Question 4 with District Attorney Dave Sullivan, Farmer Wally Sykowski from Plainville Farm, Andrea Schmidt from the Pioneer Valley Worker Center, and this show's very own ACLU attorney, Bill Newman. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hello, everyone. Gordon Oliver here. So let's face it, our day-to-day lives always involve money, right? For many of us, money is always top of mind. But here at The Cambridge Connection, we want to help you reverse that trend. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP, my co-pilot, Tina Marie, and I bring you a variety of amazing experts who can help you navigate that daily financial maze of life and guide you to a better relationship with your money. This week, Gordy and Tina Marie go deep on the what's and why's of insurance with Justin Doyle, licensed insurance agency agent with New York Life. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are under an avalanche of apples and everything from the orchards up and down the valley. Galas and honey crisps, McCown and the good old fashioned Macintosh, along with pears, plums, and other delights from the orchard. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. This bonafide minute is brought to you by New England Orthopedic Surgeons of Western Mass. Your shoulder. It's one of the largest and most complex joints in your body, consisting of the bones of the upper arm, shoulder blade, and collarbone, and the rotator cuff, a collection of muscles and tendons that not only surround the shoulder, but give it support and a wide range of motion. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Competitive hockey and basketball players can sustain shoulder injuries such as shoulder separation and dislocation and tears of ligaments and tendons from sliding into the boards, falling on the ice or court, or direct contact. But shoulder sprains, strains, and tears can also occur in us regular folks at Sunday pickup games, during dreaded winter shoveling, or even through wear and tear over time. So whether you're a professional athlete, weekend warrior, or someone in between, you can trust the team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons to give you the best bona fide care around. Visit neortho.com to schedule your appointment today. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. More of our roundtable discussion on question four on the Massachusetts ballot, the Work and Family Mobility Act, driver's licenses for all, with the usual host of the show, Bill Newman, Andrea Schmidt from the Pioneer Valley Workers Center, farmer Wally Sykowski from Plainville Farm in Hadley, and District Attorney Dave Sullivan. Andrea Schmidt. I just want to touch on some of the talking points that the opposition has been sharing. Okay. So we're obviously pushing for yes on four for safer roads, as D.A. Sullivan said. I will act as devil's advocate with a Boston accent like my parents argued with me about with this exact question just last week. So I may interrupt you at certain times. Should, should I play your parents yeah, with you my Boston accent? You can accent? be my okay. dad. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready, Monty. <laughs> um, yeah. So just to reiterate what D.A. Sullivan said, this notion, right, that a license means that folks will be able to vote. Completely wrong. 
I just applied for a standard license because I didn't have my the paperwork I needed to get the real ID. I, by the way, me too. When I renewed my license, I do not have a real ID. They were, had like they needed like eight hundred forms yep, of identification. That's I was right. like, I don't even have those. Yeah, we don't have. It's it's a lot of work to get those. Right. A lot of work. Basically, folks are just going to have to show their address um, where they currently live, and then they would get a license. That is not. There's nothing around social security. There's nothing that would risk folks being able to somehow infiltrate or like vote in any way that people seem to be so concerned with. Okay, here's um, my mother now. They're they're not going to do that. They're not going to go. They're already here without permission. They're not going to go and sign up to get their license. Will they go through the process of getting a license if given the opportunity? Yeah. It's been it. proven in 16 other states mm-hmm. that they, they go in mass because all of a sudden they can take their kids to medical appointments, to mm-hmm. school, uh, make it to work, go to church. All these things happen because they don't have that fear. But then they're cutting the line in front of everybody else who's trying to do the right thing and get their immigration status in line. Wrong. There's no cutting any lines. It's just for safer roads for all. Let's get the uh, representative of the American Civil Liberties Union, the director of the Western Mass branch of the American Civil Liberties Union, radio host, and my lawyer, Bill Newman. What's your take on the Work and Family Mobility Act, given what we've heard here in this roundtable discussion we've been having with Andrea Schmidt from the Pioneer Valley Worker Center, Wally Sykowski, farmer from Plainville Farm in Hadley, where the best Hadley grass is from, and District Attorney Dave Sullivan? The American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts emphatically endorses yes on question four. There is this congruence of interests that has come together. Law enforcement supports yes on four. District attorneys overwhelmingly support yes on four, as do sheriffs, as do the major city police chiefs. Immigrants' rights groups support yes on four. The agricultural community supports yes on four. Insurance companies support yes on four. The business community support yes on four. All of the talking points for the opponents of question four have been debunked. There is no basis to claim that this has something to do, it gives a leg up on voting. It doesn't do that. What it does is it allows Massachusetts to join 17 other states. We're not an outlier in this. We're not a leader on this. We're joining what 17 other states have done, which has decided that persons on the road who are driving on the road should be trained drivers. They should be tested. They should be qualified. They should be licensed. They should be insured. If you're against drivers being trained, tested, qualified, licensed, and insured, then I guess you could oppose this. Otherwise, this is the most common sense proposal that makes our roads safer, that makes people's lives better, that takes care of kids, that has a proven track record, as the district attorney has pointed out in the 17 other states, where roads are safer. Law enforcement feels that the question of who is driving the car is satisfied because there's a state identification, a license there. And that's important to law enforcement. And as a humanitarian and civil rights and and human rights issue, we're talking about kids getting to school and to doctor's appointments and going to the grocery store. This is a matter of common sense, common decency, and human rights. Vermont and Connecticut and Rhode Island and New York and New Jersey, they already have this law. To say we want to be part of the community that says, yes, we want safer roads and we want human dignity and human decency for our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, this is a no-brainer to vote yes on four. That is ACLU attorney Bill Newman. Uh, Let's have our final thoughts with this roundtable about question four. Um, Let's hear from you. District Attorney Dave Sullivan. What I'd say is uh, we should all look at question four. It's been vetted through the legislature. Let's keep the Family and Work Mobility Act. Let's do the right thing, and let's enhance the quality of life, uh, not only in the Valley, but all of Massachusetts. Andrea Schmidt from the Pioneer Valley Workers Center. Final thoughts? Yes. Well, agreeing a lot with D.A. Sullivan here, this was a 15-year struggle that was passed. It's already law. That's another thing that's important to remember. It's already law. The majority of the legislature supports it. It was backed by so many different communities across the, the state, faith groups, unions, all sorts of folks coming together and making this possible. In my time at the Workers Center, I have seen the 
real trauma that not having a license brings to families. I had to pick up a family once who was left on the side of the highway because their dad was arrested for not having a license. And really just seeing children sitting on the side of the 91 because the police officer was not able to identify their father was really harrowing to witness. And it's completely, completely avoidable. It's already law. Uh, this is an opportunity for the whole state to, I guess, have to decide again. And we hope that, you know, we, we ask folks to vote yes on four and really show, right, that this is not only something that the legislature supports, but also that it's a popular law that that people want to get behind. So, um, yeah, vote for yes on four, please. Final thoughts from Farmer Wally Sykowski from Plainville Farm in Hadley. I'll tell you a story. There's a guy in Holyoke who has 80 cars in his name, and he charges people double the insurance that he pays. That's how bad people want to be driving with insurance and registration. So they signed a title over to this guy. He insures the car for him, and they pay him double. Here's the thing. People are going to do what it takes to make sure their families have enough to eat. Imagine yourself, listener, right now. You have to leave your country for one reason or another, and you're in a new place with your whole family, and you need to make sure they're going to eat. You're going to do everything it takes. And if there's no public transportation to get you to and from work, you're going to figure out a way to drive. What we are asking people to do who have come into this country through various means and methods and reasons and probably have not actually committed a criminal act, it is a civil infraction to be in this state and this country without documentation. It is a criminal act to drive without a license. It's a criminal act to drive without insurance. A no vote on four is asking people who are here trying to take care of their families to commit a crime like may be going on or may or may not. Don't say in front of the district attorney, and, but you've got a defense lawyer here in Holyoke. That's what the reality is on the ground. A yes vote eliminates the need for all that stuff and makes it more possible for people to support their families, no matter what their background's from. Just vote yes on four. Final thought from ACLU attorney Bill Newman. I would like to emphasize that this law, as Andrea Schmidt from the Workers' Center has pointed out, is the law. It passed the Massachusetts legislature overwhelmingly. And what we are being asked to do is say, do we support this law continuing? It doesn't go into effect until, I think, July 1st of uh, 2023. So, but it is the law, and all the preparations are made for it, and the Registry of Motor Vehicles is totally prepared for it. And it's worth noting, because uh, people always say, well, what's, what are the economic consequences of this? Well, they're really good because people have insurance. There are fewer accidents because people are trained and licensed. And there are fees involved so that there are millions and millions of dollars that people will pay for in license fees and registration fees. So the Commonwealth of Massachusetts actually is a financial beneficiary when this law becomes the law. Well, at least in this room, apart from the parental acting that I was doing earlier. We are in unanimity about this. But if you're on the fence, like my parents are, or like other people might be, hopefully our conversation today has convinced you why so many different parts of the community are coming together to say yes on four. A huge thank you to Andrea Schmidt, who helped to convene this roundtable discussion, ACLU attorney and radio host Bill Newman, District Attorney Dave Sullivan, and Farmer Wally Sykowski from Plainville Farm and Hadley. Thank you all so much. Election Day is Tuesday. You can vote early now. If you have a mail-in ballot, don't forget to mail it in and uh, vote yes on four. And don't forget to turn your ballot around because question four is on the back. Thank you, Monty, for that great symposium. That was really, really well done. We are now going to turn to question five. We'll be speaking with Tim Walter from Plainfield the, and the Asheville chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. Question five, is that a yes or a no? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler. A few key tax relief measures were left out of the latest spending bill that Massachusetts legislators could vote on yesterday. With a price tag of $3.8 billion, the bill will fund hospitals, housing initiatives, public transit, and other programs, but leaves out nearly $1 billion in proposed tax breaks that lawmakers had previously called much-needed relief for Massachusetts residents. The Boston Globe reports that House Speaker Ronald Mariano cited economic uncertainty as a reason for rescinding the tax relief measures, as well as the separate state law that will return about $3 billion to taxpayers this year. Orange residents will be voting on a new library renovation project November 8th. The current library, Wheeler Memorial on Main Street, was built in 1914 and is not ADA compliant, has no staff space, 
only one bathroom and is almost 8,000 square feet. The town's seeking to renovate the library and bring it up to 20,000 square feet with ADA compliance. The project would cost an estimated $15.6 million, the town eligible for a $5.2 million grant from the Mass Board of Library Commissions, leaving the town with a $10 million burden on the taxpayers. If the town votes in support of the project, it'll move forward to a special town meeting in December where it'll need two-thirds vote. Boyden Brothers Farm in Conway traveled to Wisconsin for the annual International Maple Awards and came home with multiple trophies. Howard and Gene Boyden won first place for Grade A Golden and Maple Candy, and they won second place for Maple Cream and Maple Sugar. Boyden Brothers Farm is a member of the Massachusetts Maple Producers Association, a group of more than 300 maple producers. These producers make over 50,000 gallons of maple syrup every year. I am Nick Oresco, a dry evening with temperatures dropping into the 50s by sunset, mostly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s to low 40s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden dijo el miércoles que las amenazas de algunos candidatos republicanos de negarse a aceptar los resultados de las elecciones del 8 de noviembre si pierden es una amenaza para la democracia y culpó al expresidente Donald Trump de inspirarlos. No se equivoquen, la democracia está en la boleta electoral para todos nosotros, dijo Biden en un discurso pocos días antes de que los estadounidenses decidan si los demócratas mantienen el control tanto del Senado como de la Cámara de Representantes o entregan el poder a los republicanos. Biden, hablando en el Union Station de Washington, no lejos del Capitolio, usó el ataque con martillo contra Paul Pelosi, esposo de la presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes Nancy Pelosi en su casa de San Francisco, como evidencia de que la democracia está amenazada menos de dos años después de los ataques del 6 de enero al Capitolio de los Estados Unidos. Instó a los votantes a pensar largo y tendido sobre el momento en el que nos encontramos. En otras informaciones, el gobernador Charlie Baker firmó el martes un proyecto de ley para restringir la práctica en la que algunos pacientes intentan y fallan en los tratamientos preferidos por el seguro antes de que su aseguradora apruebe una opción más costosa recetada por un médico. Estamos encantados de que el gobernador Baker lo haya convertido en ley, dijo Mark Haimovitz de la Red de Acción contra el Cáncer de la Sociedad Estadounidense del Cáncer, quien lideró la coalición que apoya el proyecto de ley. Esta ley vuelve a poner las decisiones de tratamiento en manos de los médicos y los pacientes donde corresponde. Garantiza que los pacientes obtengan el medicamento necesario de manera oportuna. El proyecto de ley final exige que las aseguradoras procesen las apelaciones de terapia escalonada en tres días hábiles o 24 horas en casos de emergencia. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For many voters in our listening area, there will be a question five on their ballot. It is an advisory question. It asks this. It's the carbon cashback public policy question. And it, it is advisory. It is not binding, but it is important because it instructs the representatives, our elected officials, how we feel. This question will appear on the ballot in Lindsay Sabados's district, the 1st Hampshire, and Natalie Blaze's district, the 1st Franklin, as well as we'll find out more. There's one in the Franklin, uh, in the uh, Worcester district as well. Shall the representative from this district be instructed to introduce and vote for legislation that puts a fee on the carbon content of fossil fuels to compensate for their, the fossil fuels, environmental damage and returns most of the proceeds in equitable ways to individuals as a cash-back dividend. Here with us to discuss this is Tim Walter from Plainfield. He is a member of the Asheville chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, Tim. Tell us about this ballot question, where it is, why it is, and why you support it. Thank you for having me, Bill. Uh, back in 1980, Randy Keeler and Francis Crow <clears throat> put on the ballot in Western Massachusetts the nuclear weapons freeze. I remember Randy talking about it, and I thought he was nuts. How is a vote here in Western Massachusetts going to influence national policy on nuclear weapons? But it passed with 64.5% of the vote. Two years later, it was on the ballot in 10 states in the District of Columbia and passed in all but one of those, and it changed national policy. The United States, or the world went from having about 64,000 nuclear weapons at its peak to about 13,000 now. So the hope is 
that if people are concerned enough about the climate crisis and global heating, they will vote yes on five, which would put a fee on the carbon content and return the contents as cash back. It's, uh, it's sort of uh, putting a uh, spoonful of sugar with the cash back to help the medicine go down. Well, explain how this would work. Let's say that this passes, uh, the advisory, that, that is, it wins a majority of the vote. The representatives from the districts are instructed, uh, requested actually, but uh, to introduce and vote for legislation that puts a fee on the carbon content of fossil fuels. H how does that work? Who's being charged? Who's paying what to whom? Well, the, the fee would be uh, 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 probably on the wellhead of uh, oil companies and gas companies, and then, uh, then it would be passed on. It would be gathered and probably electronically distributed to individuals. There are different proposals, like it would go equally to everyone uh, 18 and over, and then some proposals say a half a share to children under 18. But basically, it would be collected at the wellhead. This actually is not focused so much on the state as hoping that this will influence national policy, and this would be instituted I was, I was, na na nationally. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask. Oh, I don't think we're a big oil-producing state. Wellheads, <laughs> tax on the, on the oil coming out of the ground. I don't think we have that in Massachusetts, right, do we? Right. No. As you said, it's an advisory question, and it's non-binding, but it's, a, it's more like a public opinion poll on the ballot to show that people are concerned enough about what's going on with the climate. You know, there, there are three, there's a mega drought going on in the American West. There's also a drought going on in China. There's a drought going on in Europe. And the water levels are getting so low, they're having trouble having freight go down the Rhine, having freight go down the Mississippi. And the water le the levels are getting so low, they're, ha they're having concerns about their hydropower. So this is an international question, although it's locally on the ballot here. <clears throat> so does it, assuming that... Th something like this, at least writ large, were to pass the Massachusetts legislature, mm. would it have any direct economic effect on people in Massachusetts? They would certainly get money cash back, but it would also would raise the price of um, carbon content energy. And the hope would be they would move to non-carbon-based energy, they'd get insulation, and it would spur people on to get heat pumps, to get solar, uh, and this would not say that there shouldn't be incentives for those things, but it would, uh, experts and economists say the fastest way we can reduce our carbon output is to put a price on carbon. And this is a way to do that and yet make it easy for people because they would get cash back. Now the big users of carbon, the jet setters and those with high, huge carbon footprints, they would pay more, but most people would get money, more money back on this proposal. So the increase in the cost of carbon-based fuels, that's something that would be paid by the big companies. Am I, am I understanding that yes. correctly? We're not really talking about uh, companies in Massachusetts paying more. We're talking no. about companies across the country paying more. No, it would be the big companies. The, the main proposal is at the wellhead, so they would pay it. Somebody, when we were raising signatures, says, oh, this is great. Uh, put a tax on the oil companies and give the money back to the people. So in a, in a broad sense, that's what's going on here. I'm interested in this aspect of it. I, I, I have no question whatsoever about the importance of having a cost for carbon-based uh, carbon fuel. I, I, I understand that. What the, I'm not convinced about that, I, uh, that this question raises is the request that the money come back directly to the people as opposed to using the money raised from the big oil companies uh, to produce more solar or produce more wind or otherwise use the money in other ways. The cash back part of it, I'm a little confused about. Mm -hmm. Help me understand that. Right. Well, there have been proposals already in the Massachusetts legislature. Barrett and was one, and he proposed get, returning most of it. The Benson proposal proposed returning 80% and having others done for like seawalls in Boston and so on and so forth. So again, this is only an advisory thing. It'll be up to the legislators to decide how much might actually come back to the people and how much might not. But it's also a free market proposal. And it's based on, on making carbon 
more costly because it's really going to be a huge cost down the road into future generations if we don't do something now. So this puts that price on it and it, you hope it incentivizes people to get insulation, to get heat pumps, to get electric automobiles. And not that there shouldn't be incentives for those in addition to this, but this will move people much faster. And experts say it will reduce the uh, carbon dumping that we're doing right now quicker than anything else. And as I understand the theory of this question, it is <clears throat> the big oil companies will pay more money. Yes. Uh, they'll pay more money in taxes as a practical matter. Yeah, as a that fee. Will, that yeah. will, as also as a practical matter, will raise the price of gas at the pump or, the, or, or heating oil. For yeah, that matter. presumably so, they will pass the costs on. Yes. Yes, because that's what they do. Right, <laughs> right. And that the amelioration of that is the cash back to the people exactly, still, exactly. still use the fuel. Yes, and some of the proposals say the cash back should come first before people start getting charged. But that is, that's the idea, exactly. And you started this presentation by talking about how these advisory questions actually have some import and have in the past. And I'm wondering if you really have faith that this is true with regard to this proposal. I'm certainly hoping so, because given the price of gas and the cost of living, if this passes now, and if it passes well, it will have national implications, just as the nuclear weapons freeze did when it was out here in Western Mass. And has this been developed to the extent where you know, or the proponents of, of Question 5 know, who would get how much money back? Because my concern would be that those who are still using carbon-based fuels um, voluntarily are going to get money that they probably shouldn't be, well, on a moral basis anyway, uh, shouldn't be entitled to. No, that's true, but they'll be paying, the big users will be paying a lot more in, so their net get, get back will be, just for an administrative thing, it would be too complicated. It's easier just to give it back equally to everybody. But the big users will be net losers on this because they're using a lot more carbon. Oh, I see. So yeah. those who use less will still have the money returned to them in an equal amount. That's right. And so this is a fee on the, the wellheads, as you keep saying. But yeah. the people who are really going to feel the pinch are the people that are using so much oil. Because if I'm an oil company and I'm going to be pumping oil and I have to pay this fee, but I'm ultimately going to pass that fee's cost onto the consumers, what do I care? I'm still making the same amount of money. But- if I am a the U.S. military, let's say, who uses, I think, right. the most amount of fossil That's fuels right. in the country, then they'll have to pay more. Or will we have to pay more because we pay for the U.S. military? Well, that's true, too. I think they say U.S. military is about 5% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. So, yes, we would pay more, but we would get money back. That's the spoonful of sugar that helped this go down. Ultimately, there is going to have to be a price on carbon because the carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere stays there. It's not going away. And as it accumulates, Earth is going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And so you are urging people to vote yes, yes. on the carbon cashback public policy question. Yes. yes, on five, the carbon cashback. Final word from you on this, Tim Walter, member of the Asheville chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby. Well, I hope people will consider the fate of the earth and their children's future and vote yes on five, the carbon cashback. We thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for your work. Thank you, Bill. Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine This go is down. Bill Newman, WHMP. If you are on the Eversource Reduced Electricity Rate, whether you're on it now or you're eligible, you can tap into Co-op Power's solar arrays and lower your electric bill. A new energy justice initiative allows 120 low-income families to go solar, save money, and become owner-members of Co-op Power. Join Co-op Power's 1,200 owner-members building community-owned energy. For details, go to the Co-op Power website, cooppower.coop. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. 
The Bemen School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe, kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. At American National, we understand the tried and true farm and ranch lifestyle, and what's important to you is important to us. You deserve an insurance plan custom made to meet all the specific needs of your agribusiness operation. American National offers flexible farm and ranch policies with package options to help better protect your livelihood. We're right by your side. For more information and to connect with a local American National agent, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Josh is marching to honor his late father-in-law, who loved walking and cared deeply about fighting for communities. The old folks at the Lathrop community are teaming up with the young folks at Hilltown Charter and forming a team together. Molly hosted an accordion-themed bingo night to support the food bank. Different is good. The March for the Food Bank 13 is almost here, but it's not too late to get involved in any weird and wacky way that suits you. There's still time to start a team in March. Support a team. Come up with your own crazy event. Each dollar raise provides four healthy and nutritious meals for our neighbors in need. The food bank provided almost 12 million meals last year. If we can raise a half a million dollars together, that'll mean two million meals for our neighbors who rely on emergency food next year. Join Monty's March for the Food Bank 13, 43 miles from Springfield to Greenfield, Monday and Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, November 21st and 22nd, montysmarch.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. We don't have a Reverend with us, but we are so pleased that we have Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel. Rabbi, I, I want to ask you a question that is really not based on religious faith. Um, it's a question about what is happening and what has just happened in Israel. And of course, Within the Jewish community in the United States, there are enormous differences in opinions with regard to Israel and policies of the Israeli government. So I'd like to ask you this question, not really so much in your capacity as a rabbi of Congregation B'nai Israel, although obviously that is an influential part of the answer, I assume, uh, but as someone who has been to Israel, who has studied the politics and culture of that country, uh, and who is, of course, deeply uh, uh, committed to uh, Israel, and I'd appreciate your telling our listeners what has just happened in this election. Uh, am I supposed to be as uh, concerned about the results as I, I do f feel at this moment? So... Tell our listeners what has happened, and then tell us what the future may bring. Sure. Well, let me just go back to one thing you said, which is that, you know, tell me as Justin and not necessarily as rabbi. And for me, the goal is to have the two be one and the same. And certainly when it comes to Israel, um, I, I want my personal convictions to, to be public uh, as well. And what's just happened in Israel is extremely distressing, although not entirely surprising. Um, they've had the fifth election in two years, which has to do with many, many things uh, about um, Israel's parliamentary system and Benjamin Netanyahu being both on trial for corruption and being a man master manipulator of the political process. But in this most recent election, whose results uh, for the government are going to take some time to figure out, uh, it appears that the right wing uh, and the far right wing um, have scored um, victories. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that they have a majority of votes, which means that they go in Knesset, but that they have a um, 
you know, that they have a strong enough showing some kind of plurality that enables them to bring other parties together in line with them so that they have uh, kind of a majority coalition. But but the, the plain talk about this is that there's the very real possibility that the far, that this coalition will have Benjamin Netanyahu as its uh, prime minister uh, and that um, a large influential block of this coalition will not just be right wing, but far right wing. And in particular, um, that, that move further rightward is epitomized by a man named Itamar Ben-Gvir, who got his start as a follower of Mayor Kahana, the um, extremist uh, Jewish leader who was assassinated in the early 90s, who advocated for things such as a population transfer of Palestinians out of the West Bank. Now, Ben-Gvir has publicly stated that he's modified his views over the time. Over time, he's no longer a Kahanist, but he's said many um, deeply disturbing and outrageous things. Um, people are calling him the Donald Trump of Israel. Um, I would say he is um, more extreme than Donald Trump because he knows what he's doing. I would say he's more like the Viktor Orban of Israel, someone who is not embarrassed to align himself with fascist uh, policies and fascist uh, militaristic ways of thinking. Unlike Netanyahu, who as right-wing as he is, as, as um, militaristic and as uncompromising as he is, publicly he tries to uh, present um, a patina of being uh, a player in the democratic process, but his coalition partners um, don't. And that's deeply, deeply distressing, but for anyone who's been watching Israeli politics for a while, not entirely surprising. Has there been a significant shift in Israeli politics to the right in the last number of years? Well, um, it depends. It depends which view you take, right? If you go back to the late '90s, uh, to the mid and late '90s, when uh, you had leaders such as Yitzhak Rabin, who has his own problematic history. Uh, and um, Ehud Barak, and um, you know, um, you know, people who were um, openly and very forcefully trying to uh, make a two-state solution happen in, in the occupation. Um, one would say yes, but if one takes the thirty-thousand-foot view, one can make the argument that this has been a trend that's been uh, that's been in the works for the better part of fifty years. Um, despite which government has been in power, and that uh, Israeli politics uh, is one that has been steadily moving rightward because of the, um, the fears in Israeli society and the kind of the voting outlook of Israeli society. So it's, it, it's, it's um, you know, of course, the, for many of us, and this is how I feel, that the, you know, the real hope uh, is that we have a kind of coalition in power who can end the occupation in, in the West Bank and uh, advocate and um, push forward on a whole series of, of more equitable social policies um, that Israelis themselves have said that they want, um, but that hasn't come to pass yet. The right-wing party that is going to be part of this coalition, the Netanyahu it will be the leader of, what does that mean in terms of policy for the government of Israel? What does it mean in terms of how Palestinians will be treated? What does it mean for Gaza and the West Bank? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but, but right now, uh, you know, Gaza and the West Bank are, are two different realities. They, are, they live under two separate kinds of conditions. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, Israel has officially withdrawn from Gaza, but means, uh, re but retains uh, tight control of its borders um, with a blockade that has kind of, um, you know, changed over time. But 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 uh, Israel maintains a blockade, as does Egypt, of of Gaza. Um, the West Bank is different because in the West Bank, the the Israeli army actually um, is an occupier, and then and as an occupier goes into the West Bank 
and can um, do a number of things, such as impose checkpoints, uh, not only between West Bank and Israel proper, but checkpoints within the West Bank uh, that screens Palestinians and, and, um, and controls their movement, and also uh, conducts um, raids uh, of, you know, raids without search warrants and that kind of thing to, um, you know, into people's homes uh, under the guise of suspecting um, some kind of terrorist activity. But of course, most of the raids have nothing to do with that because most of the raids happen to people who are completely innocent of plotting uh, anything. So, so um, what I hear from Palestinians who live in the West Bank that they feel like they they live under a military regime where their own quality of life can change at any moment, where there's always the threat of um, not only uh, you know restrictions on movement but of actual violence uh, against uh, civilians in the name of uh, security. Um, so it's a very very uh, hostile and difficult. Uh, situation under which to live. Um, Israelis of varying political stripes will say that, you know, what happens, uh, you know, what what uh, the army does in the West Bank and the checkpoints is to um, prevent terrorists from, from uh, coming into Israel. That is not entirely wrong. Um, but the problem with the occupation is that it, it very, and, and with checkpoints and, and these other measures is that they quickly um, depart from um, their stated intent and become tools of controlling uh, Palestinians. And, um, and, and as much as possible, you know, I'm not, you know, what I rely on are not so much, uh, you know, reports by Human Rights Watch or um, kind of third party observations, but I, I try to, um, you know, read the press and be in touch with people who I know who are Palestinian and, and, and respond to Palestinian voices. Um, the counterpoint for, for all this personally for me is that I am uh, in touch with uh, and consider myself a part of um, a kind of alternative uh, community um, of people who um, are supporting and bearing witness to people to people projects uh, in, the in the advancement of um, peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, so and in the minute the, left, tell us what you're doing. So in uh, so next week, I'm actually traveling uh, to Israel, and I'm going to join a group of rabbis who will spend most of our time in the West Bank um, and staying uh, in hotels that are owned by Palestinians. Uh, and we're going to meet with uh, peace groups uh, some are Palestinian, some are joint Palestinian-Israeli peace groups that do different things to be a counterpoint to the violence, to the over-militarization, uh, and to the occupation. And um, so we're meeting with groups such as Combatants for Peace, uh, the Parent Circle of Bereaved Families, um, with and uh, a number of other groups uh, people may know about uh, that are that exist as a counterpoint to the politics, even though these groups most definitely want to affect good political outcomes. And so through this, we hope to bear witness and bring some realistic hope back to our communities. Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel, thank you so very much. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. 